1: I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast.
0: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself... What is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile and disturbing behaviors. Special thanks to some of my patrons, Marie, Jessica, Janice, Pixie, Rachel, Whitney, Maya, Alethea, Elena, Katoris, Catherine, Sam, Linda, Katerina, Teresa, Sophie, Nanette, my two Emmas, Emily, Galen, Bree, David, John, and Judy. Thank you so much, guys. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that I can bring you more of what you crave. Also, like, share, and subscribe. It just might help our little community grow. And if you happen to watch on YouTube and you also use Spotify, consider watching on Spotify instead as they have been kind enough to sponsor me in some little way and, well, we all know how YouTube treats us. But my podcasts are all written with a listener only in mind, so nothing is missed. This week's podcast is a revisit of Edmund Kemper. Edmund Kemper was born on December eighteenth, 1948 in Burbank, California. For now, let's skip the history of the world during that time. We've gone over it several times, not to mention we are going to be talking about the Edmund Kemper. So let's just begin. It is hard for me to accurately express just how important Edmund is to me. That's not to say that I agree with the things he did. I most certainly do not. But long before the Netflix show Mindhunters, years and years ago, when I learned about Edmund, his story struck a chord with me in a way that all of you will learn the specifics about soon enough, if you don't already. This podcast will be broken up into two parts because, well quite frankly, he's just one I know quite a lot about and there is a plethora of information on him. Edmund was the third to be given that name. Let's go back in his family history, starting with his father's parents. Edmund Sr. was born in 1892 in Mount Vernon, Indiana. His father was Frederick Augustus Reinhardt Kemper, born in Indiana as well in 1861. He died in 1910 at the tender age of 49. Edmund Sr.'s mother was Bertha Anna Haas Kemper, born in 1863, also in Indiana, though her parents were from Germany. The two married in 1884. Edmund Sr. was the third out of six brothers. Some of these brothers continued their lives in Indiana, but others moved down into Tennessee and Missouri. At some point after his father died, Edmund Sr. moved out to California and was farming. Maud Matilda Huey was born in 1897 in Topeka, Kansas. Her father was Henry McClellan Huey, born in North Carolina. Her mother was Viola Elizabeth Doge Huey, born in Kansas. Maud was the sixth of seven children four boys and two girls. Viola died when Maud was only 5 years old. Herself and a few of her siblings moved out west, Maud landing in Los Angeles in 1910 when she was in her very early teens. Some stayed back in Kansas. A couple of her siblings that went to California then went on to Washington state. Now I couldn't seem to find out exactly how they met, but They did marry in Los Angeles, California in 1914 when Edmund Sr. was 22 years old and Maude was 17, which was perfectly typical for the times. Edmund Sr. enlisted in the Army in 1917 and served during World War I. After, he worked as an electrician for the California State Division of Highways. Maud was a painter, and you can actually find pictures of her paintings online if you search. There was definitely talent there. She signed her paintings, Huey Kemper. She also wrote children's books as well, and she was described as highly intelligent, with a strong mind and personality to boot. She did not suffer fools lightly, as the saying goes. Our Edmund described her as domineering, being overly critical of her rather handsome husband. She ruled the home, to say the least. The couple had three boys, including Edmund Kemper, Jr., the firstborn who was born in 1919. He and his brothers were ruled by their mother, Maude. When Edmund Jr. was 20 years old and standing at an impressive 6 feet, 7 inches tall, he enlisted in the Army in 1939 and served in World War II during his enlistment. So, that is the history of our Edmund's father in his lineage. Now, let's get into his mother's side. Clarnell Elizabeth Stage was born 1921 in Winnett, Montana. Her father was Clarence Albert Stage, born in South Dakota. His father had hailed from Canada. His mother, Elizabeth Allen, had hailed from Tennessee, so Clarnell named one of her future daughters after her paternal grandmother. Spelling and all. Clarnell's mother was Nellie Nina Newdigate Stage, born in Iowa. Now, Clarence and Nellie were married in 1908, settled in Montana, and began their family. Clarnell had an older brother, Rex, and an older sister, Elnora. Both were born early into their parents' marriage, but Clarnell was born later, 12 years after their first child. Our Edmunds stated that Clarnell's own mother was domineering, just like Maud. Clarence, her father, was described as meek and quiet, letting his wife control the relationship. And interesting story. Her brother Rex, a rather handsome young man by the way, was a second lieutenant in the Air Force and stationed in a training base near the Panhandle of Texas. One day, when he was flying a B-17 bomber, Out of nowhere, he decided to fly extremely low to a highway and the landing gear struck the top of the bus carrying 28 passengers. There were no injuries, but he was of course reprimanded. At his trial, they asked him why he had done that. And he said he was, quote, prompted by an irrepressible desire to experience the behavior of a B-17 at an extremely low altitude, end quote, but stated he did not intentionally hit the bus. He was, of course, found guilty, kicked out of the army. Interesting. And get this, President Roosevelt himself confirmed that Rex had been court-martialed. Now, Clarnell herself was an attractive young lady and quite tall at six feet, And According to her high school photo, in either a yearbook or possible school newspaper, she wanted to be a secretary when she grew up and her favorite class was typing. She was in band, in the Sculptors Club, Young Authors Club, was on the Junior Prom Committee, as well as Quill and Scroll Club, so she was quite active during her school days. She was also headstrong, independent, and a highly intelligent young lady. Edmund Jr., being in the service, was briefly stationed at Fort William Harry Henderson, which was just outside of Helena, Montana, where Clarnell worked as a secretary. The base he was working at was training soldiers to be a specific kind of soldier that was willing to go on suicide missions, meaning they discouraged the men from being or getting married. But when Edmund Jr. and Clarnell met, the attraction was strong and they quietly got married on November 26, 1942 in Great Falls, Montana. So The couple had their first daughter in 1943 while Edmund Jr. was still serving his country, working with the government testing atomic bombs in the Pacific Proving Grounds. But once the war was over, he took his wife and daughter and moved to Burbank, California, which is a city north and a bit west of Los Angeles, but still very much a part of that whole area. Edmund Jr. found work as an electrician and provided a pretty comfortable living for his wife and daughter. Edmund III was born 1948, weighing 13 pounds at birth. From now on, to save on some confusion, I will refer to our Edmund as simply Ed, which is what he goes by. Now Ed's mother was constantly complaining to her husband about his, you know, quote menial job as an electrician that she had expected better. She emasculated him and belittled him regularly. She had always felt she wanted a strong man, physically and mentally, and while Edmund was strong physically, he just wasn't up to her constant tirades and fighting. Two years after Ed, his little sister, was born, and by the time Ed was four years old, he was already a head taller than his peers, but it's no wonder as both of his parents were exceptionally tall themselves. His parents' fighting continued to escalate. Many sources described it as stormy, but I don't think that word quite encompasses it. And when his mother was done with his father, well, she turned her attention to Ed and became quite overly critical of him. She called him stupid and slow, and he believed it.
1: And ironically, I have a high IQ. I didn't know that till I was locked up the first time for murder. I always thought I was a little missing up here, a little short, uh, because I was always called stupid, I am called slow, don't you think when you do things.
0: He stated that she belittled and picked at him and talked mean to him from the moment he got up until he went to bed. So naturally, he had a closer bond with his father, who treated him rather well. While well, in kindergarten, he acted out and got into trouble on occasion, no doubt, from the palpable tension in his home and how his mother talked to him. Ed's father once said, quote, suicide missions in wartime and the later atomic bomb testing were nothing compared to living with Clarnell, end quote, and that she affected him Quote, as a grown man more than three hundred and ninety six days and nights of fighting on the front did. End quote. Ed himself stated quote, Very early my natural parents were always loud and arguing, which terrified me emotionally of anything very loud or very pushy. As I was growing up, I shied away from loud noises and arguments. End quote. According to Edmund Kemperstories.com, and I've put a link in the notes as this is an excellent Kemper source, Ed, quote, also said that when Kemper was eight or nine years of age, the mother forced him to sell newspapers on the street, and that on one occasion, the father went out looking for his son after the mother told the boy not to return until he had sold all of his papers. End quote.
1: Um from my point of view what I saw was there was a great hole in my life there was a lot missing from my life and it didn't necessarily mean feelings it meant I had walled off this, this emptiness in my life okay I had uh, an upbringing that was uh, some have called uh, dysfunctional okay parents divorced when I was young my mother started drinking heavily uh, she was working to raise three kids we were not being cooperative about it she drank more, she punished us harder, uh, probably out of desperation. Uh, so s- character sets were being developed at that point, rather than me going to Boy Scouts and getting achievement badges as I was finding devious ways to get around the rules of the home. Because the whole home life, just I watched it deteriorate from what typical kids on the block were doing to coming home from school that I didn't like anyway
0: When Ed was eight years old, his parents separated, later divorcing when Ed was in his early teens, and Clarnell took the children and moved back to Montana. Ed was devastated. He didn't want to move away from the home he had always known, away from the father that was at least decent to him, his school, his friends, and he especially didn't want to go to Montana and live with her. At this point, Clarnell was drinking heavily, and the verbal abuse escalated. Ed later stated that she used to smack him in the head frequently or take physical punishments entirely too far. Ed was becoming angry.
1: I got in the legs. One time I turned around shrieking, and she hit me in the mouth, and the little keeper on the clasp flew off, a little silver buckle thing. And she smacked me. This thing breaks off on my mouth and right? She hits me across the face with his belt and says, shut up, the neighbors are going to think I'm beating him." But I'm looking at her, it's, what? You know, uh, I'm not supposed to cry out, which is a natural reaction to these great red welts that are going on.
0: So he would escape this stress by becoming interested in things that scared him and fantasizing about hatred because he had no outlet. He developed fantasies about being the last person alive on the earth. And really, haven't we all?
1: Very few people knew me because I'm in that basement. And now I'm pulling into myself. And now things are getting very morbid in their orientation. I start becoming fascinated with things evolving around death and destruction and evil and all of that. I'm not saying I became a Satan worshiper because I didn't. I was afraid of evil things, afraid of those powers uh, that we all don't understand. And as a little kid... You know, I had a very, very strange orientation to those. I mean, it wasn't rational.
0: In school, his teacher talked about this and how lonely children would feel, but Ed thought that it was an interesting thought, and that became the seed. Everyone is gone, no restrictions, no being yelled at or disciplined. Then it built to people being inanimate and how they couldn't hurt or affect him. Then it went further and further And at one point, he had made the statement to his sister, who had been teasing him about a teacher he liked, that he would have to kill her to kiss her. Now, he meant that she would have to be inanimate and therefore wouldn't react to him kissing her, if that makes sense. He wouldn't have to worry about her reaction. At this point, he didn't literally mean he would have to kill her. Now, the house that they lived in had a basement with no windows, and Ed was terrified of the dark. When it was time to go to bed, he watched his mother and sisters go upstairs while he was forced to go downstairs into that dark basement. He developed rituals to try to cope with his fears. You see, there were two lights. Once he got to the bottom of the stairs, he would reach out for the string to pull and the light would come on, only illuminating a portion of the basement. He would look in all directions, terrified of what he couldn't see. Then walk or run over to the corner of the basement where his bed was, reach out into the darkness, desperately grasping for the string for the light there. When his hand met the string, he'd quickly pull it and that light would come on but he knew he had to go back and turn the first light off or his mother would tear into him so he would have to go back, turn it off and then run and go to bed.
1: I developed some morbid gains. Um, My life had started going that way at about 8. We lived in a house where there was a basement. Uh, Some people think there was a trap door on that basement. That's not so. That was a different house. It was a walk-in basement, but it was in Montana. It was a full basement. had granite walls, uh, hewn wood floorboards, and it looked like some old dungeon out of a castle or something. I was eight years old, seven and a half, eight years old, and then I was very susceptible. My imagination was very livid. And there was an old furnace in the basement that had been converted from uh, burning coal, to burning and coal and wood to burning gas. And that was it Had a central heating system with uh, uh, your typical radiators. And if you've ever lived in a home like that, you know, you have the binging, the clang, the pop, the, the rattles, the weird sounds in the night that can be spooky to a kid. Well, at a certain time of the evening, the family left the center room, the, the living room of the house. My mother and my sisters, or my sisters themselves, would go up to bed upstairs, where I used to go to bed, upstairs. I had to go down to the basement. And an eight-year-old child had a tough time differentiating the reason in that. Why am I going to the basement? I'm going to hell or going to heaven. Uh, Earth is the living room. I'm going down to deal with demons and monsters and ghosts and all the things that scare me. They don't have
0: to. When he would cry and tell his mother that he was frightened, she would smack him in the head and tell him to quit being so scared. His mind began to fracture ever so slightly. He later said he remembers wanting to kill her.
1: I'm saying I've wanted to kill my mother since I was eight years old, and I'm not proud of that.
0: Edmund found out that Clarnell had been mistreating Ed, forcing him to sleep in the basement Edmund later stated he put a stop to that and threatened her with the law. To try to cope with his declining mental health, he developed games to play with his younger sister, and sometimes a friend that would come over to play as well. A couple of the games included rolling each other up in a rug and seeing who could escape the fastest, and the other was tying each other up in a chair and making it seem like it was an electric chair after watching a news program about a criminal being executed by electric chair. And side note, so-called experts love to state that this was some form of play that proves he would grow up to be a serial killer when Really, this is just recreating something they heard about on television. It was using imitation during play. Nothing more. Ed tells a story about how he was allowed to go visit his father in California once for one month. And while he was there, his father had bought him a toy handgun. It hadn't been cheap and Ed treasured it. His younger sister had not been permitted to join Ed on this particular visit, and she was jealous, which is normal. After Ed returned home, his sister was being sort of demanding of his attention, and Ed was playing with that gun. His sister grabbed it and chucked it across the room. When Ed went to pick it up, it was broken. He said the mechanism inside was broken and not repairable. He was furious, of course, so he stomped into her room, grabbed her most prized possession, which was a Barbie, pulled the head off and cut the hands off. He handed it to her and said, quote, there, now your toy doesn't work too good, End quote. It is important to note that Ed himself doesn't think this particular incident is a puzzle piece that fits into the picture that made him a serial killer. He believes this was just intense sibling rivalry that is actually pretty common. If a sibling breaks a beloved toy, the other will break one of theirs. Simple as that. But his mother regularly smacked him around and constantly talked about how horrible men were in front of him.
1: And had had a very strong and violently outspoken position on men.
0: Ed stated that when she, quote, beat the hell out of him, she also demanded he stop crying out in pain. He'd walk around with big red welts on him. Flashbacks.
1: She'd beat me halfway senseless with that belt, trying to impress, and, and in terror tactics. Okay, we're going to eat dinner and I'm going to beat your ass afterwards, you know, so I think about it for a half hour. Or after some little thing she's doing. She tried psychological tactics. She tried, uh, I'm going to put you in an orphanage. I'm going to disavow you. And none of that shit worked.
0: He didn't fit the mold of the child she wanted. And she tried to force him into it. But that's not to say that he didn't know something inside of him was unraveling and coming apart. At 10 years old, Ed buried the family cat alive. Once he knew it was dead, he exhumed it decapitated it, and put its head on a stick. His mother moved him and his sisters again to a new place in Montana, thus having to start completely over at a new school. He hadn't ever been great at making friends, but this move ensured he now wouldn't. The other boys bullied him, and he was fearful of getting into physical fights with them, although he was so much bigger than they were it is likely the boys picked on him because he was such a tall kid. Regardless, the stress of this and his mother's constant picking at him and hitting him was becoming more than he could handle. His mother remarried quickly to a man named Norman Turnquist in 1962, and Ed's stepfather did make an attempt to bond with the young man. He allegedly took Ed on fishing trips and taught him how to hunt, the rite of passage into being a man back in those days. But the couple turned around and got divorced the next year, citing extreme cruelty. And funny that, because that was what was the grounds for divorce with Edmund. Extreme cruelty. Ed stated that he would sit and watch his mother, quote, field strip grown men in these intense emotional contests and when they would become so angry that they'd be obviously trying to restrain themselves she would berate them with taunts of smacking women around
1: because i was very intimidated by her she's six feet tall she weighs two and a quarter 225 pounds she's not a fat woman she's just this great big woman Who I was terrified of. She had uh, verbal capabilities you wouldn't believe. And she could control people like that. I'm sitting there watching that in awe from the one point of view and in terror from the other. I grew up with this stuff. She did that to my dad when they were always battling before the divorce. But I'm saying there was a lot of psychological involvement there.
0: Edmund would watch these men get seriously angry, punching walls and whatnot, stomping around. And this is how she treated men. Period. She had done this to Edmund's father, and she regularly practiced this on her own son. But Ed himself would watch her do this and would be both horrified and fascinated simultaneously. When he was 13, Clarno complaining about what a horrible kid he was and reminded him that she had been forced to lock him in the basement to keep him from raping his sisters, although that would have never happened, and finally sent him to visit his father in Los Angeles. He was thrilled to go. He hated Montana and desperately wanted to be away from his mother.
1: I wanted to be with my father. That's a very topical uh, approach to it. I wanted to get away from my mother because I was dreaming, thinking, fantasizing murder all day long. I couldn't get it out of my head.
0: While he was there, he and his stepbrother, as his father had remarried, hung out together and they managed to get along fairly well at that time. Ed stated that his father treated him good, like a little man, the way his father wished he had been treated by his own mother, Maude. Ed felt like he could relax a bit and that maybe he wasn't such an awkward youth, but like all things, it came to an end.
1: So I go see my dad for 30 days, and my stepbrother and I, we go out and mow lawns. We say, gee, Dad, you're going out to dinner tonight. Can we go someplace and eat? And he says, sure. Give us a few dollars. We go down to some little diner down the street. He treated us like little men, like he wanted to be treated by his... He came from a matriarchal household, and I go stay with my dad, and... He, I, I can only say he reflected back on his childhood and said, gee, I wish I'd been treated this way. So that's how he treated me and my stepbrother. And we responded to that. We'd go If we needed spending money, we would go out and we'd do tasks around the neighborhood, clean yards, rake this, mow that, water the flowers, and make a few dollars, and we'd have some fun. Okay, and then um, sometimes he'd ask us to do something. We'd do it because he was always fair with us and kind, and he was generous with us. So... 30, 30 days of doing this opened up whole new feelings in me that I'd never had before. And I wish I'd had more experience with my father.
0: He was gone for one month, and when he got back, his mother immediately picked up on the fact that he was happier for being there. She quickly fell back into her mind games. He was growing so rapidly, his mother used that as ammunition as well, calling him a freak. By the time he was 14 years old, he was already well over 6 feet tall. He was having disturbing and dark fantasies about death at this point. Sounds very familiar. He continued to kill small animals. Ed thought so little of himself that he would play games like lying in the street, waiting for a car to run him over, which of course never happened. He said every time he did that, The car would stop and the person would get out very worried about why he was laying there, but he would stand and run away. Finally, his mother sent him to live with his father, much to Ed's delight. He was thrilled to get away from his mother. As he started yet another new school, he fell into old habits. He always thought he was dumb because he was called stupid, and slow. He had no faith in himself, and he stated he was not a thinker, that he was basically on autopilot until an art teacher in the ninth grade took an interest in him and decided to pull the guarded and withdrawn teen out of his shell.
1: Don't you think when you do things? That was the problem. I wasn't thinking when I did things. I just did by rote, I did by memory, I did by example. And I had absolutely no faith in myself at all. I had no interaction going on in my own mind. I was not a thinker. I was not an individual. I had a teacher in the ninth grade who changed all that. He made me think. He would not tolerate my not thinking. He was an art teacher. And it was a devastating experience for me because there were gears in my head that were just rusty and they were barely moving or not at all. And that's when I found out that's what the state of my mind's functioning was. I didn't think. He made me think. And he gave me puzzles to work out in school, in my class, where I had to resolve these to continue on with the class. I had to think. I had to use abstracts. And after that started, that became fascinating to me. So I got more and more involved in thinking and about my surroundings and things like that. But by then, I was locked up.
0: He kind of forced him to come out of his mind and fully pay attention. But at home, he was arguing with his stepbrother. His father had a new family now, and Ed felt like it was a competition to get his attention. For the holidays, Ed's father and the family took a trip up to visit Ed's grandparents. Now, Maud and Edmund Sr. lived on an isolated farm in North Fork, California. At that time, Maud, then 66 years old, was writing children's stories as well as still painting, Maude would often paint outside, enjoying the serene views surrounding her farm. She appreciated its isolation that let her work in peace and without disturbances. Once Christmas was over, Ed was told he was going to be staying with his grandparents, that he would not be returning home with his father. Ed stated that he felt like his father abandoned him and that affected him deeply. Now, Maud noticed that her grandson was, quote, sullen, and she also knew how much he wanted to go back to live with his father. So she told him that if he ever wanted that to happen, he'd better do what she said. So Edmund stated that it was okay at first, you know, things were calm. After all, he wasn't in Montana with his mother and so forth. But as the months went on, his grandmother's decision to try to help him by completely smothering him with psychological discipline was having a negative effect. He had escaped his overbearing mother just to be forced to live with another woman who was nearly as bad.
1: I didn't go there for one thing. I got left there. We went there for Christmas from my father's in L.A. We went up to the mountains to stay for Christmas and I got left behind. I was having friction with my stepbrother and my stepmother. There was problems there. Uh, We were vying for his interests, vying for his love. They were desperate because they're the new family. I'm desperate because I've never had the man in my life. I wanted my father's love. I wanted his approval. I wanted his recognitions. And we all got very greedy and desperate at that time, so we fought each other a lot. And it was a lot of friction, and he couldn't handle that, so he got rid of me. Uh, I was old family. I was already failure, so... You know, I got parked up in the mountains. There was a lot of dressing on it and window dressing and things. But I was up there with them for 10 months. Uh, At first it was okay because it was the calm of being away from Montana. There wasn't the the hell you stuff. I was going to a good school. Uh, As the months went on, uh, the veneer went away. My grandmother had made agreements with me from the gate that she wouldn't get into little humiliating mind games with me like my mother and stepfather had done right and I agreed I wouldn't do certain things and then this mind game stuff started up she was convinced I wanted to go down the mountain into town little north fork to um, hang around with kids rowdies and stuff and be a juvenile delinquent so she would never let me go down there on my own she never let me leave the property and I just it started simmering I guess started building the, the, the passions and the tension. I started developing the fantasies toward her from my mother, killing her.
0: She would not let him out of her sight, even to hang out with kids his own age. He wasn't even allowed to leave the property. Maud would notice him staring into space, lost in his thoughts, and would become angry and accuse him of doing it on purpose to scare her. The tension built and built, and the fantasies he had had about killing his mother changed over to his grandmother. Now, 15-year-old Ed could feel himself getting to that breaking point. On August 27, 1964, while his grandmother sat at the table writing, he grabbed his rifle and shot her in the head. She was dead instantly, but he shot two more times into her back. He then wrapped her head in a towel and dragged her body into her bedroom. Not long after, his grandfather returned to the farm with the groceries that he had bought. He got out of his truck, went to the back to begin unloading the bags, and Ed shot him in the back of the head. Ed describes that exact moment like this. On top of that mountain, he said he felt everyone in the world in that instant turning and looking at him and what he had done to his grandparents. He was paranoid, scared, and violent. He described himself as a rabbit, cornered with nowhere to go. Ed told an interviewer once that if the house had been in town, he would have been a mass murderer in that moment.
1: And then a month later, I'm up living with my grandparents in the mountains. And 10 months later, I murdered them. it made it worse to be on top of a mountain. I was literally on top of a mountain when it happened. And I could sense, I sensed everybody in the world just stopping what they were doing, turning around, saw what I did and are coming to get me. And I knew I was paranoid at that moment. I knew anybody that came up there and gave me a funny look or a fishy eye or quizzical look. I'd have blown their brains out thinking they were coming to get me. And if it had been in a city, I would have been a mass murderer at age 15. I would have killed until they gunned me down. I wouldn't have been able to reason my way out of it. I was scared to death and I was violent. I felt my back hit that wall. I was the rabbit that always ran, that always backed away, always burned his bridges. Suddenly there weren't any more, And my back hit that wall and I came out screaming and kicking and shooting.
0: When he finally calmed down a bit, he fully realized what he had done and called his mother in Montana to tell her what he had done. She told him to call the local sheriff's department. They came and took him in and questioned him, and he immediately confessed to the murders. He told them about his grandmother and how he had begun to have thoughts of killing her a lot recently, but that killing his grandfather had been an act of mercy, that he didn't want him to have the pain of knowing his grandson had killed his wife. And, folks, that is part one. Next week, we will have part two of Ed Kemper's story. So guys, so far, tell me what you think about his young life, his childhood, both biology and environment that might have contributed to him growing up to be a serial killer. Leave me a comment below or DM me on Instagram, at serial underscore killing. All of my contact information is in the notes, but most importantly… Thank you so, so much for listening, because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me, and I really appreciate that. Thanks, guys, and have a great day.